Turn with me to Luke 6. This is our third message through the Sermon on the Level. And so we're going to look at the spirit of King's kids this morning. A hero can be defined as a person who in the opinion of others has special abilities, achievements, or personal qualities and is regarded as a role model or ideal. And so let me ask you, any of you have a hero? A lot of us do. At some point we've sought to copy them or, or imitate them. Maybe if you uh, play sports, you're an athlete, you get to the free throw line and you bounce it exactly the number of times they do, spin the ball the way they do, or in a batter's box, tap your cleat, kick your leg like they kick their leg, use the same glove. Maybe you got a favorite movie star and you imitate their makeup or dress or their style or maybe you have a favorite author and you've read every book that they've got or a, a certain historical figure and you've read all their biographies, you can quote them. Maybe spiritually, pastor or family member or saint of old or a disciple and you pray like them, you talk like them, maybe you use the same study Bible that they do. As Christians, our hero is and should be who? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 said, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. But not just outward imitation. The problem with that, as the preacher Philip Brooks points out, is this. He said, The perception of the copyist is blind. He imitates some visible characteristic and repeats it over and over in a futile attempt to capture the greatness of his hero. Truth be told, you're never going to become a great preacher like Billy Graham or Adrian Rogers just by copying their mannerisms, are they? You're not going to become a great hitter like Chris Bryant just because you do the same pre-batter's box routine that he does. And you're probably not going to look like Reese Witherspoon just because you change your hairstyle to look like her. And so Brooks says this, he says, If you truly honor, reverence a great man, you will get at his spirit. And so that is what this section of the Sermon on the Level is about. What does the spirituality of a devoted follower of Christ, a true king's kid, what does it look like? Jesus is not just calling us to just mere outward imitation, but true Christianity from the inside out. And so we're going to look at three things that he calls us to. A magnanimous disposition, a life-important vision, and a careful self-examination. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, and you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The Word of God to the people of God preached in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we come today. And Father, I just pray that you will cause me to decrease. And Father, you will increase in me because what your people need this morning is they need to see Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you will, through the preaching of your word, show us Jesus and his mighty, powerful spirit that shows up in these verses. That, Father, we can go out and we can imitate him, not just in his outward appearance, Father, but from truly our heart that we would live Christianity out from the inside out to a world that desperately needs the witness that is the wonderful Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus Christ Himself. And so we pray this now in His wonderful, powerful, mighty, and precious name. Amen. Amen. So first thing we're going to look at is a magnanimous disposition. A magnanimous disposition. When I don't know if you're like me, when I first read these verses... 37 to 42, I thought, man, these are kind of all discombobulated. You know what that word means? Kind of confusing all over the place. I mean, look at what Jesus says. He says, judge not, condemn not, oh, forgive, oh, give, and what's this whole good measure pressed down, shaking together, running over into your lap? Oh, and then let me tell you a parable. Hey, plus a disciple's not above his teacher, and oh, you hypocrite, get this log out of your eye. It just seems kind of all over the place. The Jews called preaching... Charis, which is stringing beads. So they would give little bits of things kind of all together so that, and they wouldn't spend a lot of time on each one to keep people's attention. It's been said that when people go to a website now, you have eight seconds to capture their attention. If that was true then, imagine what it was like then when you're preaching. Same thing with preaching. I mean, you've got to keep people's attention. So he's moving rapidly from one topic to another, and though it seems kind of confusing to us, there is a unifying theme here, and that is the spirit of discipleship. And so the first thing that he says is that the spirit of discipleship is a magnanimous disposition. It's a big fancy word that comes from two words meaning great spirited. So that is exactly the type of person that Jesus is calling us to be, a great spirited person, and we're going to look at it in three aspects. So an accepting disposition, forgiving, and giving disposition. So first, an accepting disposition. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 37. He tells us to have this accepting disposition with two kind of negative Mutually defining commands. Look at what he says. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So the word judge here is a Greek word. It is a legal technical term. It means to judge or decide, held before a court, to hand over for judicial punishment. We get the word critic from this Greek word. The word condemn means to find or pronounce guilty. Both are what are called active imperatives with a negative particle. And you're like, okay, you just, why do I even care? An active imperative is a command. We are commanded to do this. Negative negates it. It means you're not commanded to do this. In the Greek, it means to stop something that you are in the process of doing. Aren't we as humans love to judge? Uh, Frederick Godet says that we judge for the pleasure of judging. I, mean, I didn't hear a whole lot of people say, yeah, we as humans 
enjoy judging for the pleasure of judging. But do we not see that in our world? Take the media and politics. I mean, people, I don't care what side you're on, so I'm going to give it on both sides of the aisle. Because it's really both sides of the aisle. So people who've never met Trump, he's a racist and a misogynist. Never met him in their life. Never met Clinton, and she's a communist, and Obama is the stupidest. I had to come up with something that would rhyme with this. Think about TV shows. Maury Povich. He says, we're going to find out in a minute who is the father and what do people start doing. They start judging. Oh yeah, he's a father. It looks just like that kid. And he starts saying, ain't my kid. Don't look like me. This and that. Cooks versus cons. Oh yeah, he's doing a cook move. Oh, that's a con move. He can't be a cook. I just saw last night when we were watching Family Feud, there's a new show coming on called Snap Decision. And it's all about judging. Think about sports. What do we do, coach? When Green Bay loses Sunday, what do we all do on Monday? Monday morning quarterback. Well, I wouldn't have called that play on fourth down and go, would you? Man, I can't believe that Aaron Rodgers threw into that coverage. Don't we judge? And so Christians, we forget that we are new creations in Christ. And so what do we do? We carry over our fleshly ways and we tend to be judgmental and critical. So think of a couple ways that we do this. One, we're often self-righteous. Be turning to Romans chapter 12. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, don't we? We see the best in ourselves and we see the worst in others. Have you not read? Romans 12, verse 3. And then I'm going to read Galatians 6. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to what? Think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. What do we tend to do? Think of ourselves a lot higher than what we ought to be. Look at Galatians 6. Talked about this this morning in our prayer time. The coach asked that we be praying for Coach Hugh Freeze from Ole Miss. So what do people say? Oh, I thought he was a Christian. He's calling an escort service. He's doing this. He's doing that. Look at the command that we are given, brothers and sisters. What does it say? If anyone is caught in any transgression, in verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him. And then look at what Paul goes on to say. What? Keep watch on yourself. Because guess what? You might be the next one. And so he says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So we need to stop being self-righteous. The other thing we need to stop doing is being hypocritical. We emphasize one type of sin over another. Y'all have heard me say we have certain respectable sins in the church. There's no sin that's respectable in the eyes of God, right? But you know what I'm saying. That we dismiss one sin and we uh, allow the other. In the arena of sexual sins, we dismiss homosexuality. But then when people are having sex outside marriage or cohabitating, it's no problem. So turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 
And so we see other sins as egregious and dismiss our own. I want you to listen up very closely to these two categories. One, they are both sins of excess. We condemn drunkenness, but yet gluttony is no problem. Please tell me the difference. There is none. One is a sin of excess of alcohol. One is a sin of excess of food. And yet, you know, I'm not condemning you if you struggle with weight and all that, but we shouldn't have 400-pound pastors in the pulpit. Next, a sin of the tongue. Oh, did you hear uh, Did you hear the deacon? He cussed this morning. But then you're gossiping. It's no different. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Because I'm turning there. Look at what uh, Jesus says. That's the whole thing He says here in verse 41. Look at what He says there. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. You're looking at a tiny little speck in your brother's eye and you've got a big massive two by four in your own eye. Look at what He says in 1 Corinthians 6. People use this over and over to condemn what? Homosexuality. Right? Look at what Paul writes. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It's not just homosexuals that won't inherit it, but what? Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers also will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's not be hypocritical. And then we're often condemning. We excuse our own faults. Have you ever heard somebody say this as a Christian? Well, that's just me. And then somebody else does something very similar to it. You know, and what we'll say? Well, I don't even know if they're a Christian. So we're condemning. Same thing back there, Galatians 6. We looked at that. So Jesus is saying, look, stop it. Knock it off. Now that being said, the second thing we need to note of is this, that Jesus is by no means prohibiting all judging. Did you hear me? He is by no means prohibiting all judging. Do you have a favorite verse? How many of you have a favorite verse? What's somebody's favorite verse? Just shout it out. It's a great one. I declare to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ. <laughs> That's right. If I do nothing else in this pulpit other than tell you that Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins and I've done my job, amen? Do you know America's favorite verse? Nope. Don't judge. Matthew 7.1 Judge not and you will not be judged. Hughes calls it the Magna Carta of American religion. I mean, folks that don't know a single Bible verse couldn't find Matthew in the Bible if you slapped them in the head with it to save their life. They don't know no theology. They think the Bible by and large is a bunch of fairy tales. But I'm telling you, you let them feel the slightest amount of disapproval or condemnation or judgment and suddenly full-blown King James English comes roaring out of their mouth, judge not and you'll not be judged. Well, you're a Christian. You aren't supposed to judge. And so we think judging is the most heinous crime. Folks quote that verse to do what? Prove that we should not judge at all. 
And like I talked about in Sunday school, they forget this, that a text without context is what? A pretext. So they take it out of context. Or they forget the fact, as I told them, Dr. Easley, you remember this? Cassie, I ought to make Cassie get up here just to see if she can remember. Do you remember the definition of systematic theology? What does the whole Bible, did you catch that? What does the whole Bible, not one verse, teach us today about X? What does the whole Bible teach us about judging? You can't just take Jesus' words here that say, judge not, and say, oh, you as a Christian shouldn't be judging. Again, have you not read? Look at what Jesus says down here at the bottom, 42. Take the log out of your eye, and then what? Then you'll be able to see the speck that's in your brother's eye so you can get it out. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5 as I look at one other verse. John 7, 24, the same Jesus who just spoke that said this. He said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We've said how many times, you've probably heard it said, that we are not judges, but we are what? Fruit inspectors. Paul has a very interesting play on words here. Romans 14, verse 13. He says, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Pass judgment and rather decide are the exact same Greek word. In the context of one, it's negative, don't do this. In the other, it's positive to say discern. Look at 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And there's a lot of false prophets standing behind pulpits today. And there's a lot of false prophets that Christians are listening to on a regular basis just because they're spiritual giants in Christianity. And what they are espousing is nothing more than Kool-Aid. When I preach something, I have told you, I give you permission that if I say something, you take it back to the Word of God. If it does not match up, vomit it out. Do not swallow it. If it matches up to the Word of God, then you better listen to it and obey it. But how many times do we do this? So what is required to test the spirits? To discern, to judge, right? So Jesus is not saying just throw all judging out the door. I love what Hugh said. He said it doesn't mean that it contains no suggestion of it does not contain a suggestion of moral flabbiness. And Alistair Begg says it doesn't mean we become moral invertebrates. Think about we are called to be what? The salt of the earth. What does salt do? It disinfects and it heals. And so there's some portion of that that we need to do. We're about the only moral compass left in America. Amen. And so what he's saying is a self-righteous, hypocritical, condemning disposition is what he's not allowing. Third, I want you to note that Jesus says proceed with extreme caution. You remember what David did in 2 Samuel 12 when he was told by Nathan about someone who had stolen a ewe lamb. He said, bring this man in. He deserves to die. 
David, you've done the exact same thing, but you did something even greater. You stole a man's wife. You see, judgmentalism just looks at everybody else's sins and says, oh, yeah, and then it's merciless. One pastor said this, he said, at best, judgmentalism is a sign of spiritual cancer and at its worst, a sign of spiritual death. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. And so if you, as Jesus is saying here, to men, if you judge men, guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to judge you. If you condemn men, guess what they're going to do to you? Return the favor. And you're not necessarily being persecuted, you might just be being a jerk. And then look at from a standpoint of God, what does it say? And you will not be judged. The implication is that if you run around judging all the time, then what? You will be judged. And so let me ask you, what's your favorite indoor sport? Because a lot of Christians, you know what their favorite indoor sport is? Judging and condemning. Take heed. You might not be a disciple and you might not even be a Christian if that's your favorite indoor sport. Alright, next is a forgiven disposition. Look at what Jesus says. He says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Now i got to get this out there. Jesus is not destroying justification by faith, right? Because it would contradict Ephesians 2, 8. For it is by grace through faith you have been saved. Right? But when God's grace comes into someone and changes them, then they are truly changed. It's not that they turn over a new leaf. They now have a new life. The Bible is clear that we are now a new creation. The old has what? Passed away. The new has come. And so a forgiven disposition is evidence that that person has been forgiven. One person said how believers act toward others is a reflection of how God has acted toward them. My wife and I are dealing with this right now with a family member. How believers, you say you're a Christian, well then how you act towards others is an exact reflection of how God has acted towards you. Let me ask you, sir, ma'am, that is here today, how much have you individually been forgiven? We joked earlier when we were praying, didn't we, coach? Said that it says that you should forgive 70 times 7. 490. And we were joking that we know that that's infinity. We pray it's not literal because I'm on 495 or I'm way past 490. Amen? Amen. The Bible is clear in Psalm 103 that God has sunk our sin to the, or in uh, Micah 7.19. He's sunk it to the bottom of the ocean. In Psalm 103, He's taken it as far as the east is from the west. In Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. So you know what we then do as Christians? He has taken your sin and sunk it to the ocean and so we hold a thimble full of unforgiveness against somebody else. How ridiculous is that? It's been said unforgiveness is drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Do you know that it's more harmful to you than it is to the other person? Johns Hopkins, one of the greatest medical centers in the world, not just our country, a study, chronic anger, chronic unforgiveness increases the risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes, and other things, including it jacks up your immune system, 
And cancer, listen to this, 61% of all cancer patients have forgiveness issues. And so forgiveness, you know what it does to your stress level? Lowers it. You remember what I've said before? Don't wear a Christian t-shirt, be a Christian t-shirt. A lot of people run around with a Christian t-shirt and they are the most unforgiving, critical person you could ever imagine. Put on forgiveness. Isn't that what it says in Colossians 3? Holy and beloved, put on the clothes of Christ. And look, God is serious about this stuff. Turn to uh, Job. Do you know where Job fits in the Bible? It doesn't fit where we have it. It fits at best at the end of Genesis and possibly in the middle of it. Job 42.10 And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when? When he had prayed for his friends. Was there a lot of forgiveness that Job had to do to pray for his friends? Y'all remember? I mean, if you got friends like that, who needs enemies? Amen? When your wife is telling you to curse God and die, and your friends are carrying on like he did... So from the very beginning, Genesis, God's saying, look, Job gets this back. What? When he exhibits forgiveness in his life. What then does the New Testament teach us? We could stay here for hours. Matthew 18, I'll read you that. You be turning to Ephesians 4. Man, we got our preach aerobics going on today, don't we? Matthew 18. This is just after Jesus told Peter, forgive, 70 times 7. He, Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is an astronomical number. It's an amount... I, I mean, it would be like saying, you owed the bank $100 trillion. You're never going to pay that off. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be so with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant <coughs> fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Has Jesus out of pity forgiven you and released you from debt yes. that you could never ever pay in a trillion lives? But then that same servant goes out and what's he do? He finds a guy that owes him 100 denarii. That's just three months worth of money. And he seizes him and starts to choke him. Is that not what some Christians do? They have been forgiven so much by, by God and then they'll literally go out to some other person. They not, may not physically put their hands around them and choke them, but they want to choke them because they still hate that person and have so much unforgiveness in their heart. Hugh says this is, the, this is why only a Christian can truly pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, he said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. And we've seen that about in our own family. Look, I'm not saying that it's instant. I'm not saying you just go, every time somebody does something to you, you say, oh, well, I forgive you. I'm not saying you're not going to struggle. 
But you know what we do as disciples of Christ? Eventually, we forgive. I love this quote. William Arthur Ward said, We are most like beasts when we kill. We're most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. Next is a given disposition. Jesus says, not only are we to be accepted and forgiven, we're also to be given. Look at what He says in verse 38. Given will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap, will the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now we've got to have some cultural context. Marketers then would carry dried goods in a fold of their robe like a pocket. And so you would pour stuff in there and you know what you would do? You'd push it down. Why? Make room for more. And then you know what you'd do? You'd shake it to get more in there. And then they would just keep pouring until it was running over into your lap. What Jesus is talking about is full volume. I can't remember what it was. My wife and I were trying to fit into some small container a couple weeks ago and I'm like, that's never going to fit. She's like, sure it is. You push it down in there, you shake it some more, and you keep pouring. And I'm like... Yes, it all did fit, dear. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's the image here. And so look at what He then says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let me give you an illustration of that. Bacon. Many of you know I love to bake. Probably why I love it and am good at it is it is very scientific. It takes me back to the days of organic chemistry and quantitative analysis. And instead of measuring out chemicals that I have to have in a Benny hood, I get to measure out stuff that I then get to eat. But think about bacon in my carrot cake recipe. It's cups of flour, three-fourths cups of buttermilk, tablespoons of cinnamon, teaspoons of vanilla, half teaspoons of salt. And so what Jesus is saying is you'll get back what you give out. If you give out judgment and forgiveness and finances in teaspoon portions, you know what you're going to get back? Teaspoon portions. And if you give it out by the bushel basket load, guess what you're going to get back? It by the bushel basket loads. Now y'all know that I don't believe in we give to get, right? God is not a cosmic vending machine which you put your money in and then you go, now I'll take $100 back, Lord. Or a, a, a genie in a bottle which you rub it and wish for more and more money. But brothers and sisters, we've got to get something clear that the Bible is clear about sowing and reaping when it comes to money. I mean, if I want a lot of tomatoes in my garden, two tomato plants ain't going to work. So I told my wife next year we're going to have a hundred because it did so good this year. The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. You ever wonder why you're so broke? Why you can't get ahead financially? Maybe it has to do with your stinginess before God. My wife and I have been committed to give to the Lord for the 17 years that we have been Christians, even when there were times in which we had literally no money. I'm talking no money in the bank. One gentleman said, God will be no man's debtor. No matter how much we give him, he gives us more. H.P. Crowell, he was the uh, founder of Quaker Oats. Listen to what he said. He said, for over 40 years, I've given 60 to 70% of my income to God, but I've never gotten ahead of him. He has always been ahead of me. So, a magnanimous disposition. We're accepting, we're forgiven, we're giving. Look next at a life-imparting vision. Look at verses 39 
to 40. He told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Can I go on and say this? Jesus' disciples are to be disciple makers. And I'm not trying to ruffle feathers or anything when I say this, but brothers and sisters, this is just the stone cold hard facts. Discipleship is not some harebrained idea that Kevin Twisdale or Jimmy Hicks or Buffy Cook or the deacons here at Crossway Baptist Church came up with. It is Jesus. And He is so serious about it, He said it five times, five different ways, in five different books. And it's all over Scripture. What did Adam do? The discipleship football is put in his lap. What does he do? He fumbles it right out the gate. What do we we see it in Deuteronomy 6, 7 and 9? Uh, you know who your youth children's youth pastor is? You. How's your youth program down at Crossway Baptist Church? I don't know. How's it at 134 Bex Lane? And we see it in Paul's last breath. As I have given it to you, Paul to Timothy, you give it to faithful men and to others. We see it in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 7-9. All nations will be worshiping Him. How does that come about? When we fulfill Matthew 28-19, go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations. I mean, brothers and sisters, discipleship is not just something we want to do here at Crossway. It's a non-negotiable. A family of believers living and growing together in Christ. One of the ways in which that comes about, we come together in worship. We come together in fellowship. And also, we come together in small groups and we disciple one another. And that's what Jesus is saying. Two things quickly. Spiritual sight. Look at what He says. A blind man can't lead a blind man, can he? That just makes sense. So the first thing is don't follow false teachers because what are they going to do? Potentially lead to a broken leg or you're dead. I had an opportunity when I was in medical school. We had a particular tough time with uh, one thing that we had to learn in biochemistry section. And uh, as a chemistry major, it was easy for me to see how to figure this stuff out. We were going to have a big quiz on it the following week. But other people didn't know how to do it. So I had a little tutor class in which I showed everybody how to do it. You know why I was able to see it? Because I was a chemistry major. How good would it have been for one of our other class members to get up there as a blind person that didn't know what was going on and teach it? They teach us in medical school. See one, do one, teach one. I know that frightens a lot of y'all, but that's what they teach us to do. You see one done, then you do it, and then you teach it. But if you are blind and you're trying to stick a needle in somebody's neck, guess what? You're probably going to hit some stuff that don't need to be hit. We get this. And so Jesus said the same thing with the Pharisees. Don't follow these blind people around. We see it today in our own day. Jim Jones and Kool-Aid. We see a lot of pastors doling out Kool-Aid from the pulpit. It ain't as dangerous as Jim Jones right at the moment, but it's just as dangerous at the end. Jude 12 to 13 talks about false teachers and their waterless clouds, their hidden reefs. So be sure you're not following somebody that's a false teacher or blind. And then we need to be able to be uh, sure we can see clearly to guide others. Dr. Wearsby said there are blind people who have a keen sense of direction, but it ain't likely that any of them will be hired as airplane pilots or wilderness guides. Amen? So it's important for me and Jimmy 
and the teachers in our church to be able to see in order to then pass it on. Look then next is what he says, spiritual example. He says a disciple is not above his teacher. And so several implications. One, we should seek the best teachers. Only the most knowledgeable can lead us. I've heard people say, well, I don't want a, a teacher. I want a preacher. I, I just honestly don't understand that. I get that you want somebody that's maybe dynamic. But do you know the only qualification for an elder or pastor related to their giftedness and spiritual ability? Able to teach. And so a congregation is not going to rise above the level of what the shepherd is. So we should seek the best. And then we've got to remember we can't teach what we don't know. As spiritual leader of my home, I can't expect my kids or my wife to grow. Now there's uh, you know, exceptions to the rule, but they're not going to grow above what I do. And then we want to be careful that we don't have pride, right? None of us is above Christ. And nothing blinds more than pride. All right, the final thing is a careful self-examination. Look at verse 41 and 42. He says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Hey, get over here, let me take that speck out of your eye, and you got this log in your own. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your, own, in your brother's eye. Y'all remember what we said? A lot of times we forget that Jesus was human, don't we? And we forget that he had a sense of humor. I mean, this is like some Tim Hawkins video clip or skit guy skit. You got some guy that's an eye surgeon and he's running around the OR trying to get this little speck of dust out of his brother's eye and he's got this big massive sequoia tree out of his, you know, coming out of his eye. And so Jesus says, don't be a Hypocrite. You may know that word comes from the theatrical world in which you would have a mask on that looked one way and then other underneath it you were another way. And so we are not again called to not judge but he says you get the speck before you get the speck out of your brother's eye you get the log out of your own eye. Any of you ever had anything stuck in your eye? You know how annoying it is? I mean, you can't even see. I mean, if you've ever had something stuck in your eye like I've had, you can't even sit down. One time my contact literally got wedged underneath my eyelid. It was driving me nuts. And there was nothing I could do. I couldn't have drove a car. I couldn't have tried to lead my life spiritually. You see the point? What I had to do was lay down on the bed and pull my eyelid up and let Vicky pull the speck out of my eye and then in about 10 minutes I could actually see. So what Jesus is saying is get the log out of your own eye so that then what? You can go to your brother and be useful to him. So don't go looking to get the sawdust out of your wife's eye or your husband's eye or your friend or neighbor or the person sitting in the pew beside you you've gotten the 2 by 4 or 8 by 12 out of your own eye, right? Alright. In closing, y'all I'm sure y'all know who Charles Barkley is, right? He's called the round mound of rebound. He was famous for saying this, I'm not a role model. 
Now, whether he wanted to be a role model or, what, or not, he was a role model, right? Because there were millions upon millions of people watching him. But what he did is he abdicated that responsibility. Don't we still see that today? Maybe some of you in here are Dallas Cowboy fans, but hopefully you're not. Ezekiel Elliott. Last year when they were visiting Seattle. Video. He's going into a pot shop. Didn't make Jerry Jones too happy. Most recently, he's in trouble and may be um, put on probation for the NFL because he was in a bar fight in Dallas. We see it with reality stars. Any of you want your daughters to model the Kardashians? Any of you want them to model Miley Cyrus? So what we see is folks that are making millions upon millions with millions upon millions of people watching and either by commission or omission they advocate their responsibility to be a good role model. Now I don't know about you, but I ain't making millions upon millions. Are you? And we don't have millions upon millions of folks watching us, but we do have some important people watching us. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, some of you soon to go back to school, your classmates, our unsaved neighbors. And so I would ask you, is your life worthy of imitation by them? Remember what I've told you. There's five Gospels, right? Who knows them? Somebody say it. I'm not going to say it. Right. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John and you. Some of you are getting ready to go back to school. And although you cannot carry a Bible per se in there, you can, but you're not going to be able to just be, you know, preaching it all through the church or through the school. Probably going to tell you to knock it off, but you can preach it because you are a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. People see you and they ought to see Christ in you. And so are we accepting, forgiving, giving? Do we have a life imparting vision? And if we undergone a careful self-examination, that's what we should be if we truly are followers of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for this day. Father, we thank You for this time You've given us to come together, Father, and just to worship You today. Father, I pray that not just us have been blessed by this service, but You have been blessed, Father, as we have worship you. We have magnified your name. We have exalted your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, as difficult as it may be, sometimes we pray that you will take it today. You will be sure that our heart is good soul and you will put this word upon our heart. Father, help us to hide it in our heart that we may not sin against you, but Father, that we will go forward and imitate your precious son, Jesus, for a lost and dying world that needs to see him lived out before their very eyes. We ask this now in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So as we come to a time of imitation, when it comes to salvation, what are you imitating? Relying on to stand right before God on Judgment Day. I hope you're not imitating a lot of Americans and believing in the good person gospel. When I get to heaven, God's going to accept me because I'm a good person. Well, the Bible says there's no good people and how good you got to be. I hope you're not imitating all other religions that say good works. Well, again, how many you got to do? I hope you've kept an accurate tally of how many bad things you've done 
and how many good things you've done. Are we imitating Scripture? Believing in Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. The Bible is clear. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? The wages of that sin is death. One day physical death and one day spiritual death. But the greatest word in the English language, but God showeth, commendeth His love towards us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and so the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we, we had a conversation, uh, Jimmy and myself and Kevin with a guy outside Means uh, two weeks ago. And basically we shared the gospel with him and at the end this was basically his summary. Well, yeah, I hope one day I will be saved. Dude, I just told you. The Bible is clear that if you believe in your heart that Jesus... Or let me turn here to Romans 10. Just... If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord, believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In verse 13, listen, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a question mark. And so come this morning, receive eternal life through Christ, the free gift of God. It's easy to do. Admit your sin. Believe Christ's finished work on the cross. And in His bodily resurrection, He gives that truth to you that you will be raised from the dead one day yourself and live with Him eternally. Confess Him as Lord publicly. And Scripture says if you do that, you will be saved. And so come this morning, if that is your heart and your decision or any other decision that you need to make this morning, be it membership here at Crossway or something that's disturbed you in this message as we stand and sing. Listen to the Lord. Page 456. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm worn. Through the storms, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home when my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near when I'm tired is almost gone. Hear my cry, hear my call, oh my hand, lest I fall, take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. You'll be saved, and the deacons will come up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time that we've had to worship you, Father, through song and through uh, sermon. We thank you that uh, you just uh, taught us um, that we are to forgive, Father, and that uh, because you have forgiven us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this time we can give back to your kingdom, Father, so that we can uh, go out and tell others about your Son and what he's done for us. We love you and we praise you. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.
So we'll get together when you to You want to get together early, you want to get to stay. Because it's kind of hard for me to get here. Okay. Yes. All right. 
Jose to win yesterday? No. And it blows it? Bullpen again. Talking about Cardinals? Yeah, I watched that game. I was watching it, fell asleep. It was 0-0 going into eight. When the fans hit a home run. Cardinals hit back-to-back home runs. And then Richie hit a home run in the center. I've seen those two. And then the bottom of the I watched it. Yeah, I watched it myself. Well, I don't know what kind of cheese that is. Something's wrong. 
Oh, yeah. So we, we, we looked it up, you know. I think it ended up not being sunny, but like.